from the State Archives of North Carolina, Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating true stories from around the Old North State. Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Theme of this first season is Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, where archival documents provide evidence of a crime, a misstep, or something mystifying. In the next three episodes, we're going to share the story of Frankie Silver, A Woman Hanged, and discuss the documents that reveal the crime and punishment. Episode 1, Charlie Goes Missing. If you don't shut that baby up, Frankie, I will. He picks up the gun. He doesn't mean it, really. He's drunk and cold, and the crying has driven him past reason. But he would have killed her. I've seen a dozen Charlie Silvers, a hundred maybe. He would have cried all the way to town in the patrol car. He would have found God in the jail cell before the trial. But as sure as I'm standing here, he would have killed them both. He has a gun. It's over in a second. You can't take it back. So she takes him out. She has to. He has the gun pointed at her, at the baby. She has a split second to react, and she does. She picks up the first thing to hand, and she takes him out. An axe? So he goes down, like a pole-axed steer. She gets him just above the ear. That's in the indictment. He's lying there on the floor, not moving. It's quiet all of a sudden. Even the baby has stopped wailing. And Frankie looks down at the body of her husband, and she feels, what? I think she would be feeling shock first, and then mortal terror. She has killed a man. That's the voice of New York Times best-selling novelist Sharon McCrum reading from her book, The Ballad of Frankie Silver, a novelized account of a murder that took place in the North Carolina mountains in 1831. Her character, Sheriff Spencer Arrowwood, investigating a present-day murder, learns about the gruesome death more than 150 years earlier of Charlie Silver at the hands of his wife and speculates on what happened between them. Today in the studio, I'm joined by archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins as we uncover the story of Frankie Silver through documents in the state archives and contemporary newspaper accounts. Greetings to you all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I'm going to go talk about the story a little bit. It was in 1831. Francis, or Frankie Silver, she was known, and Charlie were married teens, and they were living in their cabin with their 13-month-old daughter, Nancy. In the remote and rugged mountain area of Dayton's Bend on the Tow River, this is in Burke County near the Tennessee line. Their cabin was on land given to them by the Silvers, about a quarter of a mile from the home of Charlie's father, about three-quarters of a mile away from Frankie's parents. The area's isolated. It's somewhat isolated still today, but back then the forest and streams were full of bear and elk and deer, Fraser fir and red spruce forest, tangles of rhododendron, and about 40 miles away sits Mount Mitchell, the highest peak east of the Rockies. It was a full day just to hunt and gather your food, plant it, harvest it, take care of children, fetch water, chop wood, Those people worked pretty hard back then. Now, we're not really sure what Frankie or Charlie looked like because we really don't have descriptions of them. But 
there is some evidence in newspapers. Yes, no photographs or anything like that. But we do have an account from Charlie's half-brother that was printed in the Madison County record in 1906. And that was 75 years after Charlie's death. Alfred described his half-brother this way. He was strong, healthy, good-looking, and agreeable. He had lots of friends, and everybody liked him. He was a favorite at all the parties. We have a little better description of Frankie. This comes from the Charlotte Journal in 1833, and it says that she was rather below the ordinary stature, spare made, speaks quickly and distinct, has a clear and rather shrill voice, light complexion, round, fair face, small, piercing black eyes, and a good and regular set of teeth. So those are two quite different descriptions. Debbie, can you tell us a little bit about where that description comes from? This description that we have of Frankie actually comes from the newspaper, the Charlotte Observer in 1833. Um, and they are physically describing her because they're looking for her and they want people to notice where she comes from. And that's in marked contrast to what we have in terms of what Charlie looked like. Yeah, I never could find a description, physical description of Charlie. Not a very good one, no. Most of this is, you know, an emotional description of him and a feel-good. Charlie was a good guy. He was everybody's friend. He was the life of the party. From his half-brother. From his half-brother. So the bias inherent in that point of view, if you like Charlie, you probably thought he was all of those things. And 75 years later. I was, after and yeah, I was curious years, to point that yeah. out, too. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the collection of newspapers we have, where we got these from. The State Archives of North Carolina has been collecting newspapers almost since its inception. We have both a physical collection of newspapers and we have a more extensive microfilm collection of newspapers. They began microfilming in the 1960s and got a National Endowments grant in the 1990s and sought out early newspapers from North Carolina and very, very vast and extensive collection. Yeah, I could find most everything, I, almost everything I wanted about this case through the newspapers that we have. And like most things, the issue you want in a newspaper might be missing. We might have most of the issues for that year, but the, the one that you really wanted to see is not there. You know, it's still a good source, a very valuable source. And lately they've been digitizing newspapers. And so a lot of that is based off of our collection and different places are, are putting that online and indexing it. So the other thing about that is that most of the papers during this time were weeklies. So there was a long lag time sometimes between the event actually happening and the time it was reported. Sure. And depending on the size of the city and the location it was in, it could be a weekly, it could be a semi-weekly, or it could be a daily. Um, but not, not many dailies in, in the 1830s, although there were some in Raleigh, I think. All right, so let's go back to our story. It's December 22nd, 1831. It's brutally cold. The ground is covered with snow and ice. Uh, rivers and lakes are frozen. Frankie and Charlie and their baby Nancy are in the wood-heated one-room cabin, so there's not a lot of space there. The days are short, and it's just three days before Christmas, and it should be a joyous time. But then Charlie goes missing. Frankie goes to the Silvers and says, hey, where's Charlie? I haven't seen him. And they're dumbfounded. They said, well, he's not here. We saw him walking home, toward home, uh, the day before yesterday. So then the family gets a little concerned. They organize a search party. So novelist Sharon McCrum, in her fictionalized account, picks up the narrative in this scenario. So they're still looking in the woods, 
in improbable places, and Frankie at this point announced that she thought he had deserted her on purpose and that she was going to leave their cabin and take their baby and go home to her mother who lived across the river in a cabin. That would be Mrs. Stewart. Now, Frankie's father and older brother were away in Kentucky on a long hunt chasing the elk herds, but Mama was home with the younger brother, so Frankie was going to go stay with her, and she left the cabin she shared with Charlie vacant. At this point, a neighbor who was an old and seasoned bear hunter named Jack Collis decided that it was a little strange that there was no trace of him anywhere in the landscape. So he went to that deserted cabin, and the first thing he noticed was that there was a great quantity of ash in the fireplace, and nobody had cleaned it out for quite some time, which he thought was strange. So he found the cooking kettle. The little creek near the cabin had not frozen because it was swift running water. So he went out there and got dippers full of water, put them in the cooking kettle, built a fire with some dry wood. First, he had scooped the ash out of the fireplace so he could make a new fire. When the fire got going and boiled the water in the kettle, he took the ash he had taken from the fireplace and threw it into the kettle and got grease bubbles. You don't get grease bubbles from wood ash. You get it from burning flesh. So then he started sifting through those ashes and supposedly found something like a buckle from a belt or a shoe and bits of bone. So now he knew where to look for Charlie. He brought the rest of the searchers back from the woods and the river, and they went through the ashes and then took up the floorboards next to the hearth and found bloodstains on the dirt floor below the boards. Well, they have caught Frankie in a lie. She had said that he had not come home. The evidence said that he had. And I want to stress that this is complete fabrication on Sharon's part, that this is a fictionalized story. It was just the way she brought it. Maybe with elements of truth weaved in, but that's the work of any good fiction writer. That's right. That's right. But then the very first article that we actually see, the the first newspaper article that we actually see related to this comes out in January of 1832 in an issue of the North Carolina Spectator and the Western Advertiser. And that tells us a story of what happened. Horrible outrage. An occurrence lately took place in Burke County, which has aroused the indignation of all classes of people. An occurrence which, for torpitude, can scarcely find an equal in the pages of fiction. The following particulars have been related to us by a gentleman who was lately near the place where the guilty and horrid deed was perpetrated. About three weeks since, a Mr. Silvers, who resided on Tow River in Burke County, was missed under the following circumstances. His wife went to the house of her husband's father and inquired for her husband, saying that he was not to be found at home. She was told in reply that he had been seen in the afternoon of the preceding day passing toward his own house and had not since been seen by them. Hereupon, the family set off and tracked him, there being at that time a slight snow on the ground to home, but no track could be found to proceed from the house 
in any direction. The woods and river were searched by the neighbors, but without success. In the meantime, the wife had packed up her effects and moved to the house of some neighbor. At length, someone in examining the fireplace discovered human bones nearly consumed in the ashes. The search within and around the house was now renewed. A portion of the body, partly consumed by fire, was found buried a short distance from the house. Large puddles of blood were also discovered beneath the floor of the house, and in a bench was a deep gash made with an axe together with blood, where to appearance, the head of the victim had been chopped off. It is said that the neighbors residing two or three miles distant perceived a very strange and offensive odor in the air at the time the body is supposed to have been burning. We understand the wife, together with another woman who is supposed to have been an accessory, were immediately secured and committed to jail in Morganton to await their trial at the next term of the Superior Court. We do not learn that they have made any confession of guilt, but no doubt of the fact rests in the public mind. We are told that the wife often declared to her husband and others that she would kill him. The deceased is represented to have been a man of rather vagrant and intemperate habits, and the wife as being the mother of one or two children. We forbear making further comments now. So let's talk about this article. This is pretty outrageous. It really has her as the only perpetrator of the crime. She's practically convicted. And actually, in the beginning of this very article, they open with a quote from Shakespeare's Richard III when when he's trying to get rid of his two nephews. So I thought that was pretty presidential prejudicial about Frankie. The most shocking outrage is probably the article itself, (laughs) um, just because they've got her convicted right from the start. I mean, within a month of the actual event happening, uh, they have already got her packed off to jail. Some of the deeds they have her suspected of doing, when I believe her description was small and spare made, she must have gone hulked out for sure to have done what she did if this article is to be believed. Yeah, it's quite a biased piece of his time. It's not un- unlikely for a newspaper to have a particular slant. They're telling of you and they want to they want to sell papers. But this um, is pretty salacious. I mean, it, it's yeah. sensational. It's meant I, maybe to sell papers. But, you know, they talk about the head of the victim had been chopped off. It's it's let alone the gory details. It's the it is, as Debbie said, it's they've already judge, jury, conviction, they've already tried her in the a court of public opinion and rendered um, her guilty uh, without her going to trial or doing anything or standing before a judge and not her side of the story or anything going on in this article. Um, but at the, yeah, at the very end, they, they, they say, well, we forbear making further comments right now. Like, well, they, just ignore everything that we've already said in this salacious article. Right. That's bearing the lead for sure in the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> A little late for that. (laughs) All right. So this is the first thing we actually see in print about this story. It's about five weeks after the crime occurred. So in the first document that is part of the 
State Archives collection is a warrant for the arrest of the individuals involved in the murder. Can you read that first document? This is the very first thing we have about this case. It's the first thing that we know in the archives, uh, an official record. It's an official record, and it's very uh, formulaic in its layout and its language. And so it may trip up this 21st century person (laughs) reading this 19th century document. State of North Carolina, Burke County. This day came Elijah Green, before me, D.D. Baker, an acting justice of the said county, and made oath that in due form of law, that Frankie Silver and Barbara Stewart and Blackstone Stewart is believed that they did murder Charles Silver, contrary to law and against the dignity of the state, sworn to and subscribed by me this 9 day of January 1832, Elijah Green, attested by D.D. Baker, Justice of the Peace. Frankie and her mother and brother are arrested, and they're jailed in Morganton, more than 50 miles away from their home. Frankie's father, Isaiah Stewart, creates a writ of habeas corpus questioning their capture. There's not enough evidence to hold Barbara Stewart or Blackstone Stewart, her mother and brother. They're let go after a week, but the judge charges them to come back the next court date and serve as witnesses. So it's only Frankie that goes to trial, and the trial is to be held Superior Court in the spring term, which is March 1832. So she stays in jail for two and a half months. It's a bleak existence for her. True. And that next term of court would be Monday, March 26th for Burke County. And Frankie would be incarcerated until that time period. The judge of the Superior Court was Judge Donnell, who had been born in Scotland and lived in Newburn. So for him to be the judge in Burke County, he would have to travel 300 miles. And in those days, that would have been by horse and wagon or buggy just to preside over the court that was meeting in Morganton, which was the county seat of Burke. So back then we would have had Superior Court would have met twice a year, fall and spring term. Judges can be from anywhere. I know the solicitor, the lawyer who prosecuted from the state, was actually from Mecklenburg County. This schedule would have been known well in advance to give everyone involved time to get there and uh, make their way to court, which was, you know, court week was, I believe, a very big event held at the county seat. Everybody's going to come to town, take care of their court business, uh, socialize. Uh, maybe the militia might also be meeting at that time, so a militia muster might happen. Just the events of the county. It's one of the few times that people could get together um, was during court week. So it was often a very social occasion where they got to see neighbors that they probably didn't see any time other than during court week. So court week was a very big deal for most families. And I would think particularly when we're talking about the back country of North Carolina, because this is early yet in North Carolina's history. And so it was not widely settled at that time. So people were very sparse on the ground. And I think it would have been a very big deal to come and gather together for court week. We don't have a lot of detail about the court. We know that Thomas Wilson was her attorney, but we know that only a year later when he has written to Governor Swain and stating that he was her attorney. Contemporary documents uh, with the court case do not name her lawyer. 
The court records that we actually have are the actual court minutes of the trial, and there are not a lot of them, but we do have some. There's unfortunately no recorded testimony for the case, but we do have one of the first documents that actually shows up is the arraignment document. The arraignment took place on March 27, 1832, and it was the state versus Francis Silver. The prisoner being at the bar was arraigned and on her arraignment pleaded not guilty. Ordered by the court that the sheriff of Burke County summons instant 150 jurors to appear on Thursday of this term as jurymen. That seems like a lot of people, but in order for you to get a jury, you've got to have enough people that are suitable to both the prosecution and the defense, as well as suit the judge. You've got to have a lot of people to choose from because a lot of the people are going to be dismissed for one reason or another, or they can't get to court week. If they're sick, they can't get there. Or if something of the creek has risen and they can't get there, then they've got to have a sufficient number of people to pull on to actually get 12 jurymen. So 150 is not uncommon to get a pool of that many people to. That's end up right. With 12. We see that pretty commonly. And just brings more people to the county seat on that day of court. After the arraignment would come the indictment. Among the court papers here in our collection is a copy of the indictment. It's fairly grisly with details. It's edited in this version I read State of North Carolina, Burke County, Superior Court of Law, Spring Term, 1832. The jurors of the state upon their oath present that Francis Silver, Blackston Stewart, and Barbara Stewart, all of said county, not having the fear of God before their eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, with force and arms, being feloniously, willfully, and with malice aforethought, did make an assault, and that the said Francis Silver, with a certain axe of the value of sixpence, did cast and throw in and upon the head of the said Charles Silver, did strike and wound, giving to Charles Silver one mortal wound of the length of three inches and of the depth of one inch, of which he then and there instantly died. And that the said Blackstone Stewart and Barbara Stewart, in manner and form aforesaid, feloniously, willfully, and of their malice aforethought, were present, aiding, helping, abetting, assisting, comforting, and maintaining the said Francis Silver in the felony and murder feloniously, willfully, and of their malice aforethought, did kill and murder against the peace and dignity of the state. William J. Alexander. So the indictment is pretty fancy. It doesn't have a lot of detail. This is in stark contrast to the horrible outrage article we read from the newspaper. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, it really is. And to me, this is where you finally get down to the meat of what we actually know about this case, because we know that Francis Silver is believed to have taken an axe and they give you the value of it and that she threw it or hit him in the head with it. And there's only one mortal blow that we know of, the length of three inches and the depth of one inch, and that he instantly died. That's what we actually know. Like you say, in contrast to horrible outrage, which tells us he's in pieces and burned and all manner of outrages have have happened to this body. 
reality here the indictment is telling us something completely different that she she beheaded him that right. she rolled him into the fireplace and you know it just makes you think who is the witness that comes forward to talk to the reporter about this but you have to look at the the who court was the person documents that happened by yeah that you know the court documents that we have but i think combined you know i think something like this article is the way we start myths. I mean, some of the myths, we'll talk later on about some of the myths associated with this, but this is pure conjecture in my my feel, my, my view for the, the horrible outrage. It's when we look at the court documents and the state archives that they're pretty clinical, they're sparse, they're not a lot of detail. So I guess they have to make a good show for the newspaper. The only thing I would say about that is, yes, they're very sparse and these documents are also biased and designed to do a certain thing, and that is to show evidence of why she should be tried. And so it lists the mortal wound. What we do know is at least they had their hands on the head because they wouldn't be able to describe the wound in detail. So it doesn't preclude that the head was still attached to the body. We just don't know. The details in the newspaper article are very salacious and very, you know. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, almost to to you know the nth degree in that. But while this document tells one very specific tale, it, it really doesn't eliminate all the other possibilities in, in my point of view. All we know is the indictment says he was killed instantly by one mortal blow. With an axe. With an axe. That's right. So in our next episode, we'll see what happens in court when Frankie goes to trial. That's our story for this week. Thanks to our guest, Sharon McCrum. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina. Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randa McRae, Chris Meekins, and our superb engineer, Tom Normanly. For a look at the documents we discussed in this story, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.